All right. So we are in a conversation called uh, This Changes Everything. It's shorthand for The Resurrection Changes Everything. Since Easter, we've been looking at the ways that the resurrection changes everything because we believe that uh, the resurrection is is not simply something that will happen in the age to come. It is actually breaking into our world now, and it began breaking into the world the morning of Easter uh, at the tomb of Jesus, and it has been seeping or or sometimes flooding into our world ever since then. So the, the question we've been looking at is, how does the resurrection change things right now in our world today? So we began by looking at the way that the resurrection changes who you can have a relationship with. We saw that, that Peter crossed some boundaries that were very difficult for him to cross, in order to form relationships with people that he didn't realize he could have had a relationship with in the past. So we looked at the way the resurrection changes um, relationships. It also changes who you need to be afraid of. What we saw when we looked at the story of the apostles being confronted by the uh, the the temple authorities is that they no longer needed to be afraid of them. And in fact, it was the temple authorities who were afraid of the apostles, that the resurrection changes who needs to be, who you need to be afraid of. And then last week we looked at who you are because we saw that the resurrection actually changes people. The the resurrection transformed Paul and really transformed the entire world because of that. So we looked at the road to Damascus and learned about that. And today we're going to kind of pause and take stock for a second and say, really, does it really change everything? And the reason for that is sometimes it may not feel that way. We may look at a story like Paul's and say, well, yeah, Paul, you know, he he had a transformed life. He was on the road to Damascus and then bam, everything is completely different in his life. But it may not feel that way for us. We may, we may be justified in asking ourselves, how has my faith changed my life? And maybe, maybe the answer is yes, I can think of some things. Yeah, you know, there was, there was that thing, you know, in eighth grade, um, when I first really, really began to feel that I was a Christian. And I think things changed then. Or, or maybe, you know, it was in my 20s and I really began to feel that, that my faith was beginning to make a difference in my life. But, but not so much, not lately. You know, my faith is, is, is there and, and I, I have faith, but I'm not really on fire. You know, you know, Paul, Paul was on fire, but you know, I have a good faith. I believe in Jesus. I believe in his promises, but it's kind of more of a, it's, it's a warm faith. It's, it's a cozy faith. It's a, it's a very comfortable faith. And when you say it changes you, it changes everything. It's like, well, maybe a little bit sometimes. And, and I don't know, I don't know how much you you feel this. Maybe you're on fire and, and that's great, but I think a lot of Christians uh, struggle to to understand how does the re- re- resurrection change everything? How is it really a part of our lives today? And and unfortunately, um, if we have a a warm faith, if we have a comfortable faith, then one of the things we can do is we can find ourselves actually envious of people who are on fire. We we know that guy at work who's in the twelve step program, and he is on fire. You know, there's just something at work in his life, and I kind of I kind of wish that I had that in my life. And and we, we, we look at them and we say, you know, there's something more there. And 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 I kind of wish I had it. You know, I kind of wish that my faith was as vital in my own life as, as theirs is in their life. And the, the, the danger of that, I mean that, that's a, it's great to it's great to have people who inspire you, but the danger there is that you can you can become envious. You can say, Well, God cares more about that person 
than he does about me. God, God doesn't really have much to do with me because I'm not a very interesting person or my addiction isn't very interesting or, or whatever challenges I'm, I'm overcoming. We can, we can find ourselves actually envious of people who are in a different place in their faith journey because they seem to be more on fire than us. So, so, um, the, the, this is a danger that's not new and we're going to see the way it's, it's addressed in our, in our reading today because it is a problem that people have struggled with really since the beginning of the faith. And I think, as we'll see, I think this is something that even Peter was dealing with. So, so I want to look at this passage of, um, scripture. Just one more thought, really kind of, this is kind of for, for Mother's Day. Um, you may remember the story in in uh, First Tim, Second Timothy. Paul writes a letter to Timothy, and he says, "I remember your genuine faith, for you share that faith that first filled your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice." And then he says, "I know you've got that faith. I know that faith continues in you, but I remind you to fan into flames the spiritual gift that God gave you when I laid my hands on you." He says, "He says, Timothy, you're kind of complacent. You're 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 okay with where you're at now." And you have a warm, comfortable faith. And what I would like you to do is to catch fire. And so we know this is not a new problem, but um, it is a problem. And so we're going to talk about that. The the writer George MacDonald said in the 1800s, he wrote this. He said, Jesus Christ is very easy to please but hard to satisfy. We know that everybody can can aspire to a greater faith because the goal ultimately is for us to be conformed to the likeness of Jesus Christ. So who here figures they're just like Jesus in every possible way? Okay, all right. Yeah, me too. So So, you know, all of us have some room to grow. We've got room to go if we're going to become... Christ-like, and that's the goal. And so we know it's not like impertinent to say, God, can I have more faith? That it's actually exactly what God wants us to do, is to say, how can I have more faith? I want to have a greater faith. I want to be more like Christ. And so God loves us. Jesus is easy to please, but he's very hard to satisfy. He won't stop if we let him. He won't stop until we are fully conformed to his image. So that's our goal. And so what I want to do is look at this passage. It, it begins with the word meanwhile, so we're going to have to back up one verse. Uh, what happened meanwhile? So the church then had peace. Last week we saw that, that Paul quit persecuting the church. Paul switched sides, and so now the church isn't being persecuted anymore, and so they have peace. And we know from Christian history, this is the way the church existed for the first several hundred years. It wasn't all persecution for the first 300 years of the Christian movement. There would be waves. There would be some emperor or some local authority or even just some zealot like Paul who said, I've got to put an end to this Christianity. And they would try. Um, and obviously they, they didn't succeed. And this is a point where now that Paul has switched sides, the church is enjoying peace. And maybe that's the problem, because they do have peace. So they, they had peace, and um, so that's where we pick up the story here. It says, meanwhile, meanwhile, Peter traveled from place to place. Now, that doesn't mean he had a lightning tour, you know, three, three cities in three days or something like that. In those days, you walked, and you probably spent a fair amount of time doing your traveling. He might have spent somewhere between a few weeks to a few months in every place that he traveled. So Peter is taking some time. Scholars tell us that this period from uh, up until the end of chapter uh, 11 of the book of Acts gets us to about the mid-40s. So we're already looking at uh, 12 to 15 years after the resurrection. So this is a very sedate and leisurely traveling from place to place um, because he's at peace. He's not being chased anywhere. So 
Uh, Peter traveled from place to place and he came down to visit the believers who are in um, Lydda. And there he meets this guy named Aeneas. He meets a man named Aeneas who had been paralyzed and bedridden for eight years. And Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Get up and roll up your sleeping mat. And he was healed instantly. Then the whole population of Lydda and Sharon, Sharon is the, the, the big plain around that area. So basically all the surrounding farm country around Lydda, um, all, all those people, um, saw Aeneas walking and they turned to the Lord. And really, this is not very surprising to us. I mean, and it ought to be. I mean, here's a guy who's been lame for eight years and suddenly he's walking. Right, so so that should be surprising. But as readers of the book, and really as people who've been immersed in a Christian culture for two thousand years, this is kind of yeah, yeah, more of the same. I've heard this before. Um, if you've just been reading the Book of Acts, if you sat down and tried to read it today, you'd find that this is what Peter's been doing. Peter took the lame man. This is back in chapter three. He took the lame man and helped him up. And as he did, the man's feet and ankles were strengthened. He jumped up and stood on his feet and began to walk. So Peter has done this before. And then in chapter 5 we read, this is one of many signs and wonders among the people. Even large numbers of persons would gather bringing the sick and those harassed by unclean spirits and everyone was healed. So this is kind of more of the same. By the time we get to chapter 9, it's like, yeah, okay, I've heard that. That, you know, that's surprising. And we need to take a moment and just say, that's pretty good faith. Um, that, that, you know, when I go to the hospital, okay, I pray for healing. If, if the person's there, then I'll ask them, um, you know, how can I, how can I, uh, focus my prayers? Are there particular prayer concerns that you would like me to pray for? But if the person's unconscious or if they're, if they're, um, not able to talk, then I'll pray for healing because that's something that, that I figure God can, can do. But the problem is my faith is not as strong as Peter's. Peter prays and people are healed. My faith is not that strong, and I, I have I have at least one reason why it's not so strong. Because I start I start overthinking it. I start thinking, but what if God, you know, you know, what if this is not in keeping with God's will, or what if you know my theology tells me the age of miracles is over, or or I start thinking, what if this person doesn't want to be healed, or or what if I'm doing it wrong? What if I'm doing? And I start thinking of all the reasons my prayer might be wrong, and it, I think that that overthinking defeats my prayers to some extent. So I will pray for you, and when I do, I sincerely hope that you get up out of your hospital bed and the nurses are all startled and the doctor comes running, right? I hope so, but don't count on it because I don't have the kind of faith Peter has. So so I don't want to come across as saying, you know, Peter's got little faith. Peter's got great faith. But I think it's been kind of stagnant. I think Peter's been in the same place for a while. He's been healing people all through the last six chapters. And Peter's not Jesus yet either. Peter has not yet been conformed to the likeness of Christ, so there is room for improvement. And we're going to see that room in just a moment when we read the story about Tabitha. So what do we read about Tabitha? There was a believer in Joppa named Tabitha, which in Greek is Dorcas. She was always doing kind things for others and helping the poor. So so um, Lydda's about... Uh, 30 miles, 30 odd miles from, from, um, Jerusalem. So Peter has kind of visited a lot of places on his way from Jerusalem to Lydda. That's about as far as from, from, uh, Girdwood to Anchorage. So, so it's a se- several days walk if you're stopping at villages along the way. So that's what, that's what, uh, 
Peter has done. But but uh, Joppa is real close. Joppa is right on the seashore. It's only a few miles, about five or six miles from from Lydda. So so um, that's that's where we're changing our focus. And we read this story about a woman named Tabitha. She was always doing kind things for others and helping the poor. But at this time, she became ill and died. And her body was washed for burial and laid in an upstairs room. So that's where Lid is at right now. Or that's where um, uh, Dorcas is at now. But the believers had heard that Peter was nearby. Peter was only a few miles away in Lydda. And they've heard, you know, the rumors have gotten around about Aeneas. They've heard that this guy, Aeneas, was there. And it says they're believers. We don't know why they're living in Joppa. It could be they were in Jerusalem at some previous point, and they had seen some of the miracles that the saints had done uh, in those first years after the resurrection. So they are believers too. And they say, why don't we get Peter here and see what he can do? Uh, we don't hear what their request is. They don't, they don't specifically say, please bring her back from the dead. We don't hear what the request is. But they say, please come here as soon as possible. And Peter does. So Peter returns with them. And as soon as he arrived, they took him up to the, uh, took him to the upstairs room. And the room was filled with widows who were weeping and showing him the coats and the other clothes that Dorcas had made for them. And Peter asked them all to leave the room, and then he knelt and prayed. And I imagine, you know, over the last 2,000 years, how many people would like to know what that prayer was? You know, if I just got the wording right, if I just knew what that magic prayer was. And I think maybe that's why Luke doesn't tell us what the prayer is. But but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to speculate, and this is worth every bit you paid for it. I think, I think Peter reflects, he's saying, what would Jesus do? And I don't mean, I don't mean, what would he do in this moment? But what do I know? I've traveled with him for three years. He's been guiding my ministry for the last, for the last several years. What would Jesus think about this situation? I think he spent some time thinking about it. And in the course of that, he reflects on on something Jesus did once before that he was there for. It says Jesus threw them all out, all the visitors who were who were saying that this child could never be raised. So this is from Mark five. Jesus threw them all out, and then taking the child's parents and the disciples with him, he went to the room where the child was, and taking her hand, he said to her, Talitha kum, which means young woman, get up. And I, I speculate, I, a lot of people have speculated, that as Peter was thinking about this and praying, God, what is your will in this situation? He heard those words echo in his in his ears. He heard Talitha kum, and he thought, Tabitha, Tabitha. And he said, "It." you know, he probably said, it's a sign. I would have said, it's a sign. But he thought, I wonder if that's what God is calling me to do. So he turns to the body and he says, Tabitha Kum, he says, get up, Tabitha. And she opens her eyes. I think it's interesting. She does not get up, but she does open her eyes, which is a pretty miraculous in somebody who's been dead long enough that they've already washed her body. She opens her eyes, and when she saw Peter, she sat up. And then Peter took her hand and helped her up off the bed, and then he called in the widows and all the believers, and he presented them to her to them alive. And the news spreads, and many people believe in the Lord. And Peter stays a long time in Joppa, living with Simon, a tanner of hides. So Peter uh, camps out again. His ministry kind of stops there for a little bit, and then chapter 10 happens and so forth. So he's been moving further away from Jerusalem, and then uh, 
in chapter 10 and 11, more things will happen. We'll look at chapter 11 next week. So, so Peter is now nicely positioned for the next thing that God's got for him. But I don't want to, I don't want to rush off to that because I want to talk about this idea of signs. Uh, for, for Luke, uh, a miracle is never just a miracle. It's not about the person who is being raised or the person who's being healed, the lame person who can now walk. I mean, it's great for them. It's a good thing for them. But it's not about them. That a miracle is always a sign and the goal of a sign is to lead people to greater belief. And we've seen that that's what happens. When Aeneas is able to walk, he is now, he, he, his, his, um, his healing leads people to belief all around that area in the, in the town and in the, the surrounding community. And some of them actually hear and they invite uh, Peter to come when, when, um, when Tabitha dies, when Dorcas dies. And so a sign uh, leads people to believe, and when, when Peter uh, brings Dorcas back from the dead, that in turn is a sign that leads more people to believe. And I, I wonder if Peter is one of them. I wonder if Peter has a moment there where his faith grows, because, because this is something he has not done before. Peter has not raised the dead before. He has never, um, he's never brought somebody back from the dead, and now he has. I think Peter was saying, okay, God, I know what God can do through me. I've been seeing it now for the last couple of years, really, that I can heal people because of the power of God working in me. But I don't think Peter ever imagined, until the circumstances presented themselves, that God could do something even greater through him. And and that raises this question. Rick Warren said this, and it stuck with me. God is already doing everything you expect him to do. That, that most of us, we expect God to do about that much. And God does, right? I expect to wake up tomorrow morning and I expect to, you know, have breakfast and then, you know, and we've got very modest faith and God does exactly what we expect. And because of that, our, our faith is little. Jesus, you, you may remember, Jesus called his disciples little faiths. He said, "He said you've watched me do these things, but your faith is so small." Jesus said, "You just have this little faith." He said, "You, you, you disciples, you have so little faith. Truly, I tell you, if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move. Nothing will be impossible for you." Jesus encourages his disciples: have more faith, believe that you can do more because of the power of God working you. This is something Jesus is telling us. We expect so little, and that's exactly what we get. He says, expect more. Expect more. And I know that this is a challenge, at least for Presbyterians. There's some Methodists here, too. Presbyterians, we call ourselves a kind of a, a little joking name that is far too true. Uh, we call ourselves the frozen chosen, right? We're so we're so about um, decency and, and orderliness in the way we do church together, that we really kind of don't leave a lot of room for God to do something miraculous. In fact, we've got theology that explains away why God would never do anything miraculous. That that if God does something miraculous, it's going to certainly be something so small and so subtle that nobody else would notice. And that's a lot of our theology. It's It's designed to explain why we shouldn't expect much from God. Because what's God going to do anyway? And when I read the scriptures... I don't see that. I see us being challenged continually to expect more things from God. So how can we do this? I think there's two questions we have to ask ourselves. First of all, is it Christ-like? 
And does Jesus receive the glory? Is it Christ-like? You know, if you're praying for help with your, you know, planning your perfect bank robbery or something, that would probably be a bad prayer because I don't think Jesus is going to help you with that. But if it's something that comports with what you understand about Jesus from your, from your study of the scriptures and your participation in his body, the church, then I would say you can answer that question well enough. Is this thing that I'm praying for Christ-like? And then you can say, will Jesus receive the glory? When I go to the hospital, one of the things I pray for, and I understand God's got his own, his own purposes, and I'm not always, um, uh, you know, I don't always get the memo. But I pray that the person will spring up out of their bed and do cartwheels down the hall, and the doctors will be amazed. And they'll say, wow, I'm thinking maybe I should become a Christian. Because that's what it means when God receives the glory. And then I would add one more because I'm timid. I would say, is it incremental? Peter does not bring Tabitha back from the dead the day after Pentecost. Peter has spent several years healing people. He's become comfortable with the idea that God really does act in his life and through him is able to bring healing into the world. And I think that is the preparation that Peter needed to say, well, who knows? Maybe God can even do something greater in me. So I would say, you know, wherever you're at, start there and say, okay, maybe God's got something just a little bit beyond this. There's one more thing. Peter didn't ask for this. Peter got a phone call from the nominating committee. Peter had somebody from church tap him down in the fellowship hall and say, hey, we're going to try and do this thing and it's going to be a bit of a stretch. Can you help out? Peter had two people from Lydda's, from, from uh, uh, Dorcas's church come to him and say, please come as soon as possible. See, the church really is our mother. The church can help us grow up in our faith. And so don't be so quick to assume that you don't have time or this is not your area of giftedness. If it's something you're just convinced, you've tried it before and you know, or or, or you've done it for a season and, and you're just convinced because you have some familiarity with it that this is not the thing that God is calling you to. But if it's something you're just saying, I don't know if that's me, maybe those two men who came to Peter can tell you, please come as soon as possible. And lastly, I would say, this is a challenge for the church too. I think churches can become complacent. Churches can say, you know, we have a very comfortable faith community here. We, we have a warm, cozy faith community. And we should ask ourselves as the church, is God calling us to do something more? Is God inviting us to grow our faith together the same way he invites us to grow our faith as individuals? 200 years ago, there was a, there was a um, missionary in India named William Carey, and he famously said this. He said, expect great things from God and attempt great things for God. I've been uh, privileged this spring to to be part of the the study group that the youth, um, Lonnie and the youth have been doing, which is a, a study of this book, uh, Thirst, by Scott Harrison. He was 28, and he began a charity that's now a $100 million charity. Um, it's grown, I think it's been 13 years now, from from zero to over $100 million. Their mission is very modest. They want to bring clean drinking water to the entire world. So um, so that's what they've been up to. And it's a fascinating story of somebody who has great faith, 
that if you read it, you'll just think to yourself, you know, I would have been stopped in my tracks. When, when this challenge came up, I would have said, well, there's no way that anything can happen from this point. And so I would, I would encourage you, um, seek out inspiration from people who have actually done things that you admire and say, what kept you going? How did you, how did you grow to the next level of your faith? And the answer is by taking those steps. So, so, let me, um, let me encourage you. When those two men from Joppa come to you and say, here's a great opportunity for you to increase your faith, it might very well be. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the teachings of Scripture that remind us you don't want us to simply be warm and cozy. You want us to have a burning faith. You want us to be on fire for Jesus. And you want us to do amazing things that bring Jesus great glory. So Lord, increase our faith and use those things to increase it further still. We pay it through Christ our Lord. Amen.